Well, lastly, and, and most importantly, I think, I have the opportunity to introduce our first speaker this evening. And um, he's a newer, newer friend for me. Uh, I've actually known his father and worked quite closely with his father for nearly a decade. But it has been a, it's been a real treat getting to know our speaker really over the past year. And I'm not going to do a long introduction. We're going to introduce him in kind of a fun way, I think. But I wanted to say that the quality I most appreciate about this leader is his humility. And he's a very effective leader who is very proactive about giving credit away to those that he leads. And so I think that might be the most fun way to introduce our speaker to you is to show you a little video of kind of just an excerpt of a video of a typical day at the office. Third and 11. Kirk back to throw. He's going down the middle, looking for Crowder. And he's caught at the five, and he's in! Touchdown, Redskins! Jamison Crowder! Hey, great pocket! Great pocket! Great, great pocket! Great pocket! That's so bad in practice. When there's no win, then then you drop a dime. Oh, no, he made a great catch, too. That's a great throw. Inside give Rob Kelly. Redskins trying to push that pile, and they don't get it. They're going to come up short. They came out and measured. They're a foot short. It's fourth and a foot up five, and they're coming out to go for this, Chris. Listen to me. We're QB sneaking in here, okay? We're going to go on one. What's direction? QB sneak right. Half back at six. What's that? QB sneak, and Kirk Cousins gets the first down. Gutsy call there by Jay Gruden. Wow. Let's go, man. Let's get a bunch here. Let's get a little chunk here. Here we go, man. Big drive here. All right, guys. Showtime. Touch. No huddle by the Redskins. Cousins to throw again. Cousins going to go for all of it down the middle. Into the wind, the home run ball. Looking for Garcon, caught at the 30. The Haitian sensation is all the way. Man, great job. Great job. Good pocket. Kirk Cousins goes over 300 yards with that touchdown. Great job. Way to run. Way to break the tackle. I don't know, man. How long they got that ball 20 yards into this win? And then he pulled through the tackle. That was big. <laughs> what a throw. Great thank job. you, thank you. Wait, Doc! Over the shotgun. Feeling some heat. Gonna go over the middle. Caught by Crowder at the 35. Breaks the tackle. Another to the goal line. Yeah! It doesn't seem to have been much of a factor for him flowing into the win, which is amazing. High five from everyone! High five from everyone! Everyone get in on the high five party! High five party! Oh man, that felt good. Thank you, thank you for the warm introduction, Todd. I just flew in from Minnesota this afternoon. Uh, fortunately, our flight was on time. If it had been delayed, it might be a different story tonight. But uh, we're here, by God's grace. Thank you, all of you, for being here, taking the time out of your busy schedules to, uh, to be here. This is my first uh, celebration of generosity, and I'm also somehow the first speaker. 
So if I, if I miss the mark in any way, I'm going to blame it on that, okay? Not on my poor speaking skills. But, uh, you know, I was with a, uh, at, at a retreat with someone a few weeks ago, and as we kicked off the retreat, they said uh, a quote that I really liked that I wrote down. They said, when you combine a change of place with a change of pace, you get a change of perspective. And I think that's what I'm assuming these next couple of days are all about, is hopefully gaining a change of perspective because of the change of place and the change of pace. <clears throat> you know, in Mark 5, uh, in, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, and uh, the demon-possessed man wants to follow him, wants to essentially become one of the disciples, and Jesus actually says, don't, no. He says, I want you to stay here and tell your story to the people here in this region of what I've done for you in your life. And I take from that story that, that more than just following Jesus, it's important in addition to tell our stories. And so that's what I'm here to do tonight, just to tell my story, and hopefully it can have some impact. I was raised in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor. I'm a PK. Um, so the concept of, of being a faithful giver, being a faithful steward of what God has given us, that's not a new concept to me. That's something that I was raised with from a very young age, and not only told, but I was shown uh, it was modeled for me by my family, my extended family, and the people around me. Uh, it was modeled to me what it meant to steward what God has given us. And <clears throat> being in the ministry, my dad had an opportunity when I was a kid to partner with uh, someone who God had blessed uh, significantly financially. And he had no idea how to steward that, what to do with that. So he reached out to my dad and asked for some guidance on setting up a foundation and how to discern who to give to and, and all that. Well, my dad asked him, you know, what is your intent here with this foundation? What do you really want the mission of the foundation to be? And without pausing, he looked back, really without a, a prepped, planned answer, and he said to my dad, I want to put the generosity of God on display for all to see. And my dad said, that's a pretty good mission statement. Let's go with that one. And I remember my dad shared that with me at a young age. And so little moments like that, and then I was able to watch this family friend of ours do that and give intentionally and put the generosity of God on display for all to see for many years. And so as I was raised, it just became second nature uh, once I entered the professional world to, to try to do the same. But I, it was in high school. Uh, I went to church on a Sunday, and in my hometown of Holland, Michigan, a very conservative town, it was pretty common to have two church services a day. You'd go to church at like 9 or 11 a.m., and then you'd come back at 6 p.m. Well, fortunately, uh, my parents didn't make me go back at 6 p.m. Usually, we just went to church once on Sunday. We didn't have to go twice. But uh, a man named Gary Haugen was coming to speak at the evening service at our church. Uh, Gary founded IJM, International Justice Mission, which I knew nothing about as a high school junior. And when we left the morning service, my dad said, Kirk, I think you're going to want to go back to the evening service. I think you're going to have a lot to learn from the speaker. I would encourage you to go. So I went, and by God's grace, I was able to hear Gary and, and the story of IJM for the very first time. And as Gary told stories I had never heard, never knew of what goes on overseas in terms of human trafficking and slavery and all this that I thought was eradicated. Um, as Gary told story after story of them rescuing these girls and, and changing their lives and you know, bringing people to justice who deserve to be brought to justice, uh, my heart was moved as a 16, 17-year-old. And my thought wasn't, oh, I can't wait to go to college and then go over to the Philippines and be a part of that, or I can't wait to become an IJM staff member. For some reason in my mind, what just clicked in my mind and heart was, 
They have people who can do that. They know what they're doing. They're trained in that. What, what Gary needs is money. Gary has the people. He has the knowledge. He's a, a top lawyer. What he needs is the resources to grow faster, to impact more people faster and more efficiently. And for some reason, it just hit me as I walked out of the, the church service that night. I, I just prayed kind of innocently, not thinking much of it. God, give me more to steward. Um, give me an opportunity to help that man someday. And that was it. And I just remember it being on my heart. It was a big deal to me that someone like that would have resources. I almost thought, God, how, how do you not just pour down money on that guy left and right because of his heart and what he's doing? And so I wanted to be somebody who could give. And, uh, and then I went to Michigan State, played college football there, and I was fortunate enough there to also observe givers, to kind of have a front row seat to people who were giving. Um, I was very heavily involved with Athletes in Action at Michigan State, and our campus director was also our team chaplain. He was someone I saw nearly every single day, discipled me through my five years at Michigan State. I did go to college for five years, not four years. It took me a little longer. But uh, uh, he discipled me, and yet he had to raise his support. And so I realized every day as we met or talked or after practice, walked back to the locker room and prayed together, I realized that he's not able to be here if not for a generous giver making this happen. And that giver may have no idea the impact that he's having on the starting quarterback of the football team, but this impact is, is significant. And while I'm grateful to him for his time in the ministry, I'm just as grateful to the people providing so he can do this. Um, one time we had a retreat in college down to Ohio to go to the AIA headquarters and a local businessman in East Lansing who owned a bus company donated the bus for the weekend. And, and just knowing that, it just made you want to go up to the guy and hug him and just say, thank you. Like, this is making a difference for us, for me, for my college experience. This is changing lives. Thank you. Um, so there was a realization as I went through college of what makes these ministry opportunities possible. And um, it takes generous people. And then I was drafted to the Washington Redskins where I was playing in that video, and uh, my wife, Julie, I, I met her just about at the same time I was leaving the college world and entering the professional world. Julie and my son, Cooper, couldn't be here tonight, unfortunately. I wanted to have them up here on stage with me to kind of help share the story, but they're back in Minneapolis with a six-month-old son. Traveling can be a little difficult, so they're staying back. But uh, uh, my wife, Julie, entered the picture at this point, and, um, and so we were starting to then work together in our dating relationship, and then now being married almost four years in what it means to, to be a giver now in the professional world, now that we're the ones who are earning income. And uh, I do believe in just mentioning, Julie, that uh, generosity starts at home. And I've learned that, you know, it's hard to be a generous person with your finances or with your time outside of the home if you're not being generous with your time and your heart inside the home. And so it certainly starts there. Um, so I was drafted to the Redskins, and I, I wanted to be a really good giver. And everybody from the NFL itself to mentors, they also encouraged me to be a really good saver. Um, and so that was really my focus, was be a good giver and a good saver. And as a result, I would need to live not within my means, but live below my means um, and make sure that I gave generously but lived frugally. And so there have been stories that have come out of my driving a 2000 conversion van that I bought off my grandma. That's 100% true. Um, you know, we, we lived in an apartment for a couple of years and then a, a small townhouse, and that's 100% true as well. And so in some ways, we have tried to do that very intentionally and, and, and live frugally. And 
as we get older, you know, we learn that it's okay to spend money from time to time, and so we're doing that, but uh, very important for us to live below our means, not just within our means. And uh, we started with just tithing on the gross, and we did that the first year, and I just felt like, you know, maybe we want to grow in that, and so every year I, I kind of, I wouldn't say I made a promise with the Lord, I don't think it was that serious, I think it was more a, a challenge to myself that can I give more every year in such a way that I never, never stop doing that until the day that I die, so that I never have to retract, and not only did I think that was going to be important from a giving standpoint, being a faithful giver, but from, from a saving standpoint, because I don't know if you know anything about professional athletes, but there aren't many starting quarterbacks who are 50 or 60 years old, so... At some point, unfortunately, what I'm doing ends earlier than I'd like, and the income stream gets cut off, and it's a bit of a cliff, and you'd like to think there are opportunities after that, and there probably will be, but you don't know what they are, and it's not a very clear picture. So I have a declining skill set that has, a, <laughs> that has a, a, uh, a, an, an end of life, if you will, and so giving can be a little more challenging from that standpoint because you don't know what's on the other side. And so I want to save in such a way that I can continue to give. Even when that income stream stops, I can continue to increase my giving percentage every year because of the way that we've also intentionally saved uh, to never have to take a step back in our giving. And so that's a challenge I kind of issued to myself, both as a giver and as a saver. At that same time, I just so happened to start started reading, and I found a desire to read a lot of books that were talking about this issue. And so I really just stumbled upon a few different books. One was called The Truth About Money Lies that my CPA gave me that was written by uh, some of the people at Ron Blue. And then uh, I read a couple of books by Shane Claiborne, uh, Jesus for President and Irresistible Revolution. And that really challenged me in terms of stewardship and what I do with what God's given me. I read more simple financial management books like The Wealthy Barber um, and then uh, ended up reading uh, you know, some of Randy Alcorn's books and David Green's books. And then Arguably, not just to say it here at the conference, but I, I told Todd this three, four months ago. I happened to read his book, Abundant, just about, I don't know, a year ago, six months ago, and I thought that may be the best of them all. And so uh, uh, it, it had a major impact on me, and just reading that material got me thinking and got me wrestling with, with wealth and what you do with that. Well, as the Lord would have it, after my four-year rookie contract was up, my salary is public information, for those of you who don't know that. So if I happen to talk numbers, it's not because I'm trying to show off. It's just trying to give you an understanding of where I'm coming from. And it, you can Google my name, and it's probably one of the first links that comes up. So probably not ideal, and I'm sure many of you in the room don't have to deal with that, but that's a part of, part of my, my life. So my rookie deal was a four-year deal for about $2.5 million, and that's a great chunk of change for a young 20-year-old. But at the same time, it's not, it's not going to you know change the world in and of itself. But then... The Lord uh, would have it that uh, in my contract year, which is the final year of the four-year deal, which kind of becomes the year to prove yourself to them, be able to financially take another step, the Lord saw fit to have me become the starter somewhat out of nowhere and then have a great year and stay healthy such that then I was able to be what's called franchise tagged and signed a one-year deal for $20 million. And so it jumped significantly from making half a million a year to making $20 million. And uh, I'm glad I'd read those books before that. <laughs> To have a bit of a foundation. And my response to getting franchise tagged was to start reading more books. And so that was when I encountered some of Randy Alcorn's materials and David Green's story and in founding Hobby Lobby and all that he did. And my wife and I started wrestling with how much to give now and, uh, and how much to spend and how much to save and all these questions. And, um, you know, my, as I said, my career ends, ends sooner than than probably most of your, your career will end. And so 
it is a little scary to give it away. And uh, I do believe that giving does cost you something. You know, we talk a lot about, and it's rightfully so, the celebration of generosity and the blessed life and how you give it all away and you get it all back again. And while I believe that to be 100% true, it doesn't mean that giving it away isn't a little bit scary. And I think if it isn't a little bit scary or it isn't going to cost you something, then I would question really if the giving is what it should be or at the level it should be. And so, um, you know, it needs to be sacrificial and we're wrestling with them. What's that number? I had the opportunity then this off season as our giving story continued. Um, I shouldn't skip also that I went on a one-year one year contract and, and my desire because I wanted financial security was to go to the Redskins and say, look, Let's do a four or five year contract like everybody else in the NFL. You give me two or three of those years fully guaranteed. And then on the back end of that deal, you have control over me. And those years aren't guaranteed, but it also suppresses my wages potentially if I play well. And then you have me under contract. And so that would have given me financial security. It would have also put a ceiling on what I could earn over the next five or six years, which, which would have been the height, the bulk of my earning potential in the NFL. Well, as God would have it, the team didn't believe in me to the level that it would take to do that. So they said, no, you need to prove it again. We want you to play on that one-year deal and actually show us that you're the real deal. Well, as the Lord would have it, I stayed healthy, played well. They had to franchise tag me again. This time, the rules of the league say, if you do that, you got to get a 20% bump. So I got a pay raise. And uh, the second year of doing that, my sixth year in the NFL, uh, was $24 million. And so now this money came in, and the Lord is doing it again. And then at this point, the team wanted to do a long-term deal because they didn't want the price to keep going up. They wanted to lock me in at a set rate. They're good businessmen at that point. So they said, you know, can we do a deal? And my agent's a Christian man who negotiates my deals, and obviously my family and I are waiting, waiting on it and praying on it. And we decided that uh, we're going to do the one-year deal because we felt that was a step that was going to take greater faith. And we said... Um, you know, we're going to trust the Lord, and, uh, and, and we believe that he'll, he'll do what he wants to do, and we'll see. Because we knew that if we played on a one-year deal, then it doesn't flatten your wages. You have a chance to earn even more the next year, so we're thinking about it like a businessman. And so we played out that year. As I said, the Lord allowed us to be a successful year and was healthy, and so then we entered this next contract year. Well, the Redskins were in a tough spot because... At this point, the rules of the league say if you franchise tag a third time, you have to give them a 44% raise. So that would have put the number at $34 million. And so that becomes a little bit too big to swallow. And so no matter how well I had played, they were probably going to have to say, hey, you know, we're going to let you go or you're going to have the freedom to pick. And that was what we were wanting all along. And so we had the freedom to pick this offseason and, and uh, the, Vic uh, the Redskins made a trade for, for a different quarterback, which closed that door. The Lord closed that door in his providence. And and uh, we ended up in Minnesota and signed a three-year three deal. <laughs> we have some Vikings fans somewhere in the audience. That's great. So we ended up in Minnesota and signed a contract that, um, again, on, only God, if you know anything about the NFL. But um, it was a three-year deal. There's never been a fully guaranteed contract in the NFL. Typically, you sign five-year deals with two or three years guaranteed. And then the last few years, it's maybe wait and see. We'll see if you actually get that money. Well, we were able to sign a three-year deal fully guaranteed. And so it really potentially has the chance to change the entire NFL and the way contracts go from here. And that's only God who could do that. And uh, in this time leading up to that contract negotiation, I had the opportunity to go sit with David Green in Oklahoma City 
got a, a random invite to do that and wanted to take him up on that. And so I spent two days with him, and he just gave me a couple thoughts that really convicted me and hit me. One, he said, Kirk, tithing is, is like training wheels. Uh, it's a starting point. It's not the ending point. And so that really, you know, and we had been giving more than just tithing, but it really convicted me to say, okay, let's go way beyond just training wheels. Um, he also made a point. He said, Kirk, God's not impressed with amounts. Uh, are you giving from your abundance or are you giving from a need? And um, that was challenging as well. And then he also said that the Lord convicted him with this statement many years ago. And I think in David saying it to me, it convicted me. He said, Kirk, I used to tell people, you can't outgive God. And it's true. You can't outgive God. I would say that all the time. But at one point I said that and I walked away and I heard the Lord say to me, yeah, but David, have you tried? And it really hit him. And he was saying to me, Kirk, you can't outgive God. And you probably believe that, but have you tried? And I think we all have to ask ourselves that question, did we, did we try? And then David has a mission statement, his family, because they now have a third generation and they're now getting close to the fourth generation. So they've been very intentional about how that is structured and moving forward. And they get together every summer with the whole entire extended family and they have a family mission statement. I thought this was a really good practice that I want to implement with my family as, as we grow and as we have hopefully more children and, and grow as a family to get together and have this mission statement, write it out. But the Green Family mission statement is to love God intimately and live extravagant generosity. At the end of the day, that's what the Green Family is about. And I think that's what I'm about. And I think that, that the intentionality of doing that and having that mission statement can go a long ways to making a difference. So I'm going to implement that as we go forward. And then David made a point that I think is so true because I live in a secular locker room and world and work with people in business who don't know the Lord. And, and he said, Kirk, Sometimes the Bible's principles and the MBA textbook disagree. And at that point, you got to make a decision. And I think so many times logic would say, go with the MBA textbook. And we have to think about how much is this book really the foundation of my life, the Bible? And how much am I going to stand by it even when the MBA textbook disagrees with it? And uh, that's been a challenge for me as well. So we're wrestling with that. And so where are we today in closing? Um, well, I signed this three-year contract, as I said, and uh, God has given us much more to steward. I asked him when we left that church in 2005 to give me more to steward, and uh, he answered that prayer. And so we're, we're struggling now. I use the word wrestling. We're wrestling with how much to give and how much to save, knowing that our income at some point gets turned off. Um, we're struggling and wrestling with how do you raise a son in our situation. Not only do you have means but it's public knowledge. And so the kids at school know exactly what dad's income was this year. That's, that's a little unique. Um, and they have certain expectations of what you should do with that or what you should do for them with that. And so raising a son in that is going to be very interesting to have means, but also then be in the public eye. Um, we're struggling with uh, even just being generous with family. What does it look like to give to family on both sides? And do we give evenly? And you know, my brother is here tonight, and my, my brother was there for me when I was seven years old playing in the backyard. I'm not where I am today with, without my brother, and yet I have in-laws, and I have other family members who weren't there when I was seven, and yet we want to be fair and generous to them, but at the same time, what is fair? And struggling with that, wrestling with that, trying to be wise, but also knowing that there's no set formula for every individual decision. So we're wrestling, we're struggling, and that's where I would say, those are the two words I would say where we are today, but it's been a fun journey and even after signing this fully guaranteed contract, it's still a walk of faith, very much so. 
And if ever I feel like I'm not having to operate by the same level of faith that I had to operate with when I was on the one-year deals, I need to give more. And if I feel like, um, you know, I'm uncomfortable and I'm a little bit, you know, stressed out by the gift, that's probably a really good thing. And I think that's really healthy. And I think that's good for my son Cooper to see too. So um, we're enjoying that wrestling and it's a blessing to have a, a wife who's on board and is uh, her heart is aligned in that way as well. So those conversations are ongoing. But I just wanted to finish with an analogy that hit me the other day when I was, of all things, emailing my um, uh, advisor asking about, you know, giving this year. And I said, you know, I, I just saw the movie Moneyball again. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen Moneyball. Brad Pitt's the main actor. It's a great movie. It's the story of Billy Bean with the Oakland Athletics and the way that he sort of changes the evaluation of baseball talent to develop his team in a different way because they have a suppressed uh, budget and salary cap, and so he's got to get creative with how do we win baseball games with less money than our competition. And so he comes up with this concept called sabermetrics where it's kind of different than everybody else, and it's all about finding value in players who other people didn't see value in. And as a result, he had to make some very unorthodox decisions and let players go who everybody else in the league thought were stars. The local media thought they were stars. Even his own coach that Billy had hired thought they were stars. He had to let them go, trade them, and then play players who no one else wanted but because it fit the plan. And he had to go against logic in order to implement this plan. Well, for a while, he's dabbling in it. He's only, you know, playing a couple of those guys, but still keeping those stars on the field just because he doesn't want to lose his reputation in the public eye. And he wants to preserve, you know, that traditional approach while still dabbling in the new approach. And at some point he realizes this isn't working. We're just losing games and we're just back to where we started. This, it doesn't work. I either got to be all in or I should just go back to the traditional approach. And so he calls in his assistant who he hired to basically teach him this new way. And he says to him, do we believe in this thing or not? Do we believe in it or not? And the assistant goes, 100%, I'm all in. He said, then what are we doing here? And the point is, is we either got to go all in and put these players who no one else wants on the field and risk being, you know, tarred and, tar and feathered in the public eye, or we should just scrap the idea. But if you're telling me you believe in it 100%, and I'm telling you I believe in it 100%, what are we doing here? And it's my favorite scene in the movie. They then make this five-minute scene where he calls all the other general managers in the league and trades away the whole team and brings in a bunch of no-name players. And they look at each other and take a deep breath like, well, here we go. We just jumped off the cliff. We'll see what happens. Well, the story gets even better there. They then set the Major League Baseball record for consecutive wins in a row. They win something like 20 or 21 games in a row. And I said to my financial advisor in the email, as I kind of told that analogy briefly, I said, I want to set records. So what are we doing here? And I think that's the challenge to all of us. What are we doing here? If we really believe in what the Bible says, let's just go all in. And uh, if not in this life, we'll see it on the other side. So with that, I'd love to say thank you for being here, and I'll pass it off to the worship team.